Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. How you doing, Internet? It is July 17th, 2017. You are listening to Waypoint Radio, and I am clearly not Austin Walker. I am instead Danielle Riendo. Austin is taking care of business, as they say uh, in the in the business. Uh, I don't know. All right. I'm joined by Patrick Kleppick. Is that on, like, like, the business wiki? Like, is that, is yeah. that listed on, like, a bi- wiki, business.wikia? Dot yes. com it teaches biz, you how to business biz dot nas uh, dot <laughs> that no <laughs> computer no. no please please delete that from the podcast remove it <laughs> biz dot nas is is that biz dot nas Rob, is that a is that a domain name that you can register? Well, I'm not going to register that domain name. Like, <laughs> you, like I don't want to end up on some sort of watch list. Well, biz dot ass. How about that? Biz, biz ass. ass. I like that. Uh, you also heard the uh, the voice of Rob Zachney there being uh, the voice of reason, as usual. Oh, I don't know. I, ever since the subterfuge business started over, I don't know if I would assign Rob that quality as quickly as you just did. <laughs> oh, I'm a, I'm a lot less reasonable than I was when this bullshit started, let me tell you that. <laughs> I don't know if you're talking about subterfuge or the podcast or just yes. you know, maybe where your car <laughs> is. All of it. <laughs> well, Rob, I guess that's a good segue as any into uh, <laughs> what you should... You you have a little quick subterfuge update for us, perhaps? Uh, or uh, yeah, just do you a, not want to talk about it because uh, it's too painful? <laughs> look, I mean, I'm already paying to talk about it with my therapist, so I might as well talk about it okay. with you folks. So yeah, like just a quick subterfuge update. There's there's not a ton going on. Well, no, that's not true, actually. Yeah, it seems like there's a there lot going a on for other people. Um, okay, like. If this were a movie, I would be in the foreground dealing with some like tedious bullshit, while in the background, like Godzilla is leveling the city. Like that's oh that's God. kind of what's happening. <laughs> uh, because everybody who didn't like share a border with uh, Nick Capizzoli mm-hmm. is currently having this massive underwater like you know battle for control of the oceans uh basically hundreds of submarines like racing between outposts massive fleets running into each other uh the population of troops in this in this world is just like plummeting meanwhile uh i have spent most of the weekend just building this cordon around nick because so you're, you're taking your downtime to prepare for like is this the end? Are we in the end game? We're we're rapidly approaching it. Like so, quick thing. So about it's, like, it's like Game of Thrones current season, penultimate season. Is that currently where we are in in subterfuge? Like, yes. the, the, <laughs> it's not the actual end game, but it's the the chess pieces moving to the end game. Yeah, exactly. Because one like one key thing about subterfuge is that 
you win it by building these uh, these mines that produce uh, Neptunium, I want to say. It's some bullshit, like, unobtainium <laughs> thing. But once you hit a certain threshold, you've got enough of this stuff to win the game. So you win it on points, basically. Uh, once people start okay. planting mines, the game is on a timer until it hits until they hit those thresholds. And so, like, for a few days, only one person had, like, a single mine, and their victory was, like, ten days out. And then... In the last couple days, the rate of mining like increased like threefold, and that triggered everyone just going at each other because like at a certain point you just won't have time to uh, disrupt their plan. So all hell's breaking loose with the other players. Meanwhile, I've just been boxing in Nick Capizzoli, uh, who for whatever reason. <laughs> wow, he's become you, he, he is he's your he, he, yeah, what, did, what did Nick do to you? <laughs> uh, well, it's it's kind of perplexing. Um, so the, the thing the thing to know about Nick is uh-huh. that please go on. He's actually incapable of winning subterfuge. Wow. Um, okay. Like it's Good. like you know how Good. you know how in like civilization there's those AI leaders that everybody just hates. Like once they show up, <laughs> you just know you can never deal Gandhi, with them. Right? Like, Isn't um, everyone hates in civilization? Gandhi is that, no, that my right? Am I getting that right? Gandhi has a reputation, but it's Montezuma actually who oh. like if he's on your border, he's going to come after you, and you just can never trust him. <laughs> Nick, um, sort of has Nick a similar Montezuma? glitch. Okay. <laughs> he's. Nick Nick Capizzoli is a human glitch. Nick Montezuma, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So the weird thing is, in sort of the meta history of these subterfuge games, everyone is carrying these grudges against him. And so nobody will really engage with him or plot with him. Like, I think he was trying to come after me earlier in, in the game and, like, had an alliance set up against me. And his allies betrayed him. And uh, attacked him instead. Wow! Because every game he like sows more bad will towards him, and then his reaction is kind of to troll somebody. And today this was me. (laughs) Uh, So he, after he was sort of chased off his turf, he just came down and sent this massive fleet into my my territory. And uh, basically, I had to spend the weekend building this cordon all around him, so he had nowhere to run to. And he was in this, like, impregnable, fortified position. Um, And it was just me waiting a weekend for another player who hates Nick more than I do. Um, (laughs) And and to be fair, I think that's most of them, actually. I think I'm actually... I came out of this cooler with with Nick than than a lot of other players. But uh, there's a lot of bad blood. And so when I was like, I need somebody to come help me, uh, you know, deal with this Nick infestation... Uh, somebody was like, I've got 400 submarines. <laughs> They're yours. Oh. And basically, like, rolled up behind him. So, That's uh, fascinating, the idea of the, sort of, like, the meta layer of a game carrying over in that regard. Like, I imagine that maybe doesn't happen one or two games, but it's the culmination of, like, a number of games where you just sort of, like, the tactics of people wear you out or... I, I, that's just an interesting layer to the game that doesn't happen in a lot of games it also can only happen if you're playing with like similar people over and over and over again yeah it's it's a really interesting wrinkle to this because i've only played a couple games uh with this crew but like they all have a fair bit of history so there's this like nobody is starting from a clean slate to the point where i think they're actually 
playing somewhat irrationally uh, at times. Like, <laughs> oh wow, like, like just to mix things up. No, more that like in terms of like this individual game, they are making moves that I would not say are optimal because it is satisfying grudges and bad blood <laughs> from earlier games. So like the the alliance that Nick had built against me. I think was the right way to go for all parties concerned. Like, like <laughs> at that moment, the best thing they all could have done for them would probably have been to turn on me and steamroll my territory. And that would have been it. And everyone would have gone home happy for some reason. The people that Nick was allied with didn't want to do it. Uh, <laughs> I think the problem was they just didn't want to be Nick's ally. Uh, and so, you know, that's that's how that went. And so, like, it's weird. Each individual game should be sort of this blank slate and people operating according to their own self-interest. But, yeah, as, as a group of people play together more and more often, uh, there's, there's other considerations and past history being sort of baked into the decision-making in some really interesting ways. And I actually think, you know, that's a good thing. I think that's one of the things that makes subterfuge interesting. But it also means that the game becomes even more unpredictable because you don't know, you know, you you know what the state of play is, but you don't actually know what like the emotional state of your fellow players is. <laughs> uh, and it gets it gets really interesting because of that. I, I never want to play this game ever. Like considering what it's done to your sleep schedule and, and like feeling is about life like i never want to play this game well, but i love you, hearing about you it. can schedule moves to happen while you're asleep uh and so one of the things i did to nick was just i made sure that i'd have a massive attack targeting one of his stations uh launch at around like three or four this morning i could have launched that at a different time uh but i didn't want to uh, and so I woke Three, up. Four in the morning is like just late enough that even if someone was up extremely late playing a game or d- doing whatever, it's very unlikely that at this stage in our lives you're going to be up at four in the morning. Before I am is <sighs> also too early for yeah. even er- like morning people to be up. Even for someone with kids to be up, you're looking at between five and six. And four is just that that sweet spot. And, and yet it's tough to go mean. back to sleep too. Oh, God. Because once so you're up at evil. once you're up at four thirty dealing with somebody's submarine attack, what are you going to do? You got to be work at eight. Like, did he get up? <laughs> at, did he get up and deal with it at four? He sure did. <laughs> <laughs> so I rolled out of bed at like six thirty this morning, checked my phone, and he'd made a bunch of moves to uh, deal with that deal with that attack. And yeah, that was basically um, again. There's meta layers to this game. Oh, God, so many layers. There's a good segue there about layers and about hating other people, uh, maybe to Evo, but I don't know if hate is the right word. I know Evo was this weekend. Evolution 2017. I actually watched a tiny bit of it. Uh, I don't understand anything that's going on. I, I I rely entirely on the commentary to make any sense oh, for out sure. of anything uh, because I'm not in the F- FGC. Yep. Not, not really in that community at all, but I'm interested. I definitely had uh, Evo on in one window and I had like UFC... Uh, fight night Scotland in another window, and then like my little workout routine in another. So I was I was taking it in for sure. But Rob, you know a little bit more about this than I do. Do you have any thoughts on Evo? Were there any sort of clear, interesting stories for you, or was it just also kind of taking it in? Oh man, like Evo is really daunting because there's too much to take in. Sure. Um, every <laughs> every fighting game scene is kind of its own little world. 
and it's tough to keep track of all of it. Plus, there's just a lot of goddamn fighting games uh, at Evo. Like, <laughs> yeah. In addition to the uh, myriad, like ma- what they call main stage games, the games that are going to be having their finals on the mainstream, on the main stages uh, at Evo in front of the big crowd, uh, there's also a lot of side tournaments. Uh, one of the big ones is Anime Evo. Um, I didn't even know. Okay. Yeah, Sweet. so there's this. Uh, there, there's a really good tournament of anime and air dasher fighting games that don't have like huge audiences but there's a ton of these games and they attract a really passionate uh community and that's not even like officially part of evo it's done as sort of a um annex to evo like it's all community run community organized and there's some really good stuff uh you know there as well uh there was a i want to say it was a fist of the north star uh, tournament going on where you may have seen some clips going around Twitter of this one guy whose finishing move was basically an infinite combo. And over the course of this tournament, again and again, he would just start like going nuts on his opponents for the last hit and just like start chaining these like 50, 60, 100 hit combos uh, to the point where like people started like you know they just take off their headsets and start talking with other people while waiting for the match to end and this dude is like you know frantically running up the score uh one dude just like leans back uh sort of like flags down a buddy and has him pass him his fidget spinner uh the the one that got the most play i think was a dude um basically just sort of started to look at this combo unfold took his wallet uh, out of his pocket and offered and offered his opponent money to just stop, just like just make this <laughs> end. Uh, and that's and that's kind of the the weird shit you find at uh, at Evo. And to be fair, it's one of the reasons why like if you can go to a tournament, uh, an esports event, Evo is a really good one to go to because there is so much to take in at like the side tournaments. There's um, a lot of like cash matches uh, happening in, off to the side nice. as well, so it's just it's a cool it's a cool place to be, uh, you know. And it, it's it's one of the few esports events I, I'd say where like clearly you're getting a lot of extra experiences and value uh, by being there that you just can't get watching watching on stream. But the streams are great too. There's there's a lot of good action. Yeah, was there anything that particularly caught your eye, or it? I mean, yeah. Well, there there were a few things. I guess I'm sort of writing up uh, a piece about this for today, but I think one of the big things that struck me was that uh, this this esports organization, Echo Fox, really invested a lot of money uh, and effort in beefing up their, their fighting game ranks. And sort of their marquee player, appropriately enough, is uh, this player, uh, Sonic Fox, who was just like the king of... Of, of Mortal Kombat X. Like, he like he could not be stopped. Um, and for about two years, and it wasn't just that, he was also really, really good at, at Injustice 1 as well. So for like two years, uh, he was just basically cleaning up at every NetherRealm Studios uh, fighting game tournament. And this year, people were expecting he would come into EVO and kind of do the same thing with Injustice 2, and he didn't. He went out in the quarterfinals, which you know would be fine, except 
if you're kind of a generational talent that everyone like expects to just dominate again and again and again, the moment you have like results that are just like great as opposed to like awe-inspiring, immediately it's <laughs> like, ooh, what's going on? Is 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 he okay? Like, is the era over? Uh, and so, uh, it, you know, Sonic Fox was kind of a um, by by those inflated standards, kind of a massive disappointment. Uh, and the rest of his team did really well. Uh, so it was kind of a, a weird twist. The the thing that I think, uh, you know, it seemed like Echo Fox could really count on ended up uh, fizzling while in a lot of other games they, they had a lot of success. Their guy, uh, Tokido, uh, won, uh, won the Street Fighter V tournament, oh. uh, beating uh, this player, Punk, uh, who's a really young guy playing for uh, Panda Global. And Punk's really exciting because, like, a lot of Street Fighter players in particular, I would say, skew old. Um, there, there are a lot of guys. What does and, old mean? For clarification here, what is what is old and what is young in this part of the esports world? Uh, old is old. Uh, okay. Like old is actually old, not twenty five. <laughs> it, it's it's like it's like thirties. Um, okay. Like so, it's it's not like it's not like some other esports where old is. You know, twenty-two. Uh, I was gonna like, say, yeah, God. where you burn out after your teens because your fingers oh. are falling apart. <laughs> yeah, no, for for sure. Like, uh, God, there's even some factions in StarCraft that, like, physically, it appears that like playing them at a high level, like, kind of burns you out. Like, I think a lot of Terran players uh, developed like uh, weird, like, shoulder and hand issues just because oh of the God. way the Terran faction is. So, like, a lot of these players don't have really long careers. Meanwhile, in FGC and particularly Street Fighter. Uh, people who are really good in like the the late '90s and through the 2000s, a lot of them are still around and are still really good. Uh, so, oh, nice. you know, and Takino uh, is kind of one of those characters. He's you know he's he's in his 30s. Um, he's he's got a great reputation, but uh, he's not. You know, he he's not your sort of stereotypical like young kid esports star. Uh, meanwhile, this guy Punk uh, is, I think, just like 18. And oh, wow. <laughs> in the space of uh, like the last year, has emerged as maybe the best American fighting game player like around right now. Um, it's it's really it's going to be really interesting to see uh, where he evolves uh, fr- from here. But it was this cool it was this cool clash between like you know the old warhorse and the young kid, and <laughs> it just sort of seemed like. The more experienced player, uh, in this case, uh, Takedo, just he had he had too much ability to like kind of analyze his opponent during the course of the match and like just figure out how to handle him. Like Punk started strong, but like every round you're watching it just get harder. And maybe that was nerves, but it also just sort of seemed like the young guy didn't have that ability to analyze and change it up the way that somebody who's been doing this for an extra, like, you know, 12, 15 years uh, can do. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man, that's ah, that's really, really cool. I know, uh, Patrick, you have been playing something awesome and competitive that hits with the young demographics. I, I should probably stop trying to make these uh, these transitions. <laughs> Patrick, you've well, been playing Splatoon 2. I know that's awesome. Uh, I haven't played Splatoon 2, but to touch on Evo for a second. Oh, uh, yeah, please, please. The, uh, what I find so fascinating about Evo as a event is sort of the balance it has to do with commercialization, which is true of like a lot of tournaments, but also you know the, the way Evo works is there's a cyclical nature 
uh, and balancing act of like you know the old games that people are still playing, and then the way Evo survives as a big mainstream event, which is that it needs players transitioning to the big new games that the publishers are pushing. And specifically, what is interesting about right now is everyone was so excited about the new Marvel vs. Capcom game, but like I've never seen more heat generated at a fighting game and its roster in the way that Marvel vs. Capcom has gotten it. Like that game is on such poor footing right now with its community, which made me then interested in like how they handle rollouts for it going forward, which is essentially trying to bridge new goodwill um, prior to that game's release so that hopefully people will give it a chance. And so I'm, I'm not shocked that the character they announced uh, this weekend for uh, the new uh, MVC game was a Darkstalkers character, which is like the right kind of like weird... Um, like hardcore fandom sort of character that you're going to announce when you can't give them the X-Men character because Marvel won't let you put the X-Men characters in there as they slowly try to <laughs> kill that franchise um, in, a, in a weird meta uh, corporate game they're playing with 20th Century Fox. Um, but I, as someone that doesn't follow the games themselves and the players themselves, I end up really being interested in seeing how all of that plays out. Like, Robert, do you... Have any sense of like where that dynamic is? Not necessarily with Marvel's Capcom, um, unless there's something you observed uh, there. But just sort of that dynamic of like, oh, here are the new games. Like, please give a shit about these games because these are the people that sponsor us and allow this event to take place at these giant arenas. Yeah, I mean, there's. I think the the tension has been getting more pronounced. I I would say, and and largely it's probably Capcom driving that dynamic, uh, because sort of the the flagship, a lot of the flagship games for the fighting game community are uh, Capcom fighters, and so you had a really popular game in Street Fighter Four, uh, which was in a great place in in terms of uh, competitiveness and uh, you know balance. People loved that game, and they're really happy with it. But and five has been kind of a nightmare, like for a <laughs> lot of yeah. reasons. Uh, yeah, and I think that's one of the things that's kind of poisoned the well for uh, for for Marvel Infinite is that Capcom dropped the ball so badly with Street Fighter Five that people just don't trust it. And then what they're showing is not really, you know, it's it's one of those things where. People, people, there, there's a love for uh, Marvel versus Capcom three that like I don't fully like understand. Like it's it's cool to see people are people really adore that game. That community refuses to let it die, uh, but it's this really fierce like loyalty and attachment. It's such a different sort of game uh, from a lot of other fighting games that are out there. And people wanted more to happen with it, but now that they're sort of confronted with the fact that Capcom's not going to make another Marvel versus Capcom three in a lot of ways, it's going to be a different thing. And in the wake of street fighter five, there's like this panic that, you know, once the new game shows up, it kind of kills major tournaments for the old game, the, the game that people loved. Uh, and this, this sort of happens with Starcraft uh, as well, to an extent. Um, and so it, it is this, it is this tension. Cause like FGC tournaments more than most, are run on like enthusiasm uh, that like they, they, you know, these are very grassroots tournaments. Like Evo is largely driven by people showing up and paying entry fees to compete at Evo. That's what, that's what makes this scene work. Um, and so if the game doesn't hit with people, uh, 
you can you can't really cover it up with just sponsorship money. Like you're going what what you'll end up with is a lot of like your your top players will continue to play uh because they're, you know, soaking up prize money, but below that level things kind of hollow out and I think that's a constant tension uh within within the FGC. I I think it does create some interesting possibilities for other franchises like I mean you know Tekken had a had a great finals uh you know people were were super into te- into Tekken 7 uh so it, it's an interesting place cuz the Capcom's been able to dominate the space in in a lot of ways but um if they can't if they can't get their community on side the FGC can and will kind of move to games that you know that have more energy around them. It's just it's the nature of the way it works. Well, I want to read this. There was a, a quote going around this weekend. It was an excerpt from uh, a column that uh, Patrick Miller, um, who works at Riot now um, and has been a, a namestay in the in the fighting game community for a number of years, he wrote a column for Giant Bomb uh, a couple of years back. Um, it's called uh, uh, "What Fighting Game Is Right for Me." Um, and he talks about a bunch of different fighting games. And I just want to read this excerpt for how he talks about Marvel, because I think, like, Marvel has a very specific fandom that... Well, let me just read it. So he writes, uh, Marvel is obsession. Marvel is the highest highs and the lowest lows. Marvel is the largest predictor of unemployment, underemployment, and semi-professional poker playing among my friends. Marvel is the battleground between the <laughs> cosmic forces of order and chaos. And if you play Marvel, you might just learn where you stand. You don't quit Marvel, you recover from it. The spirit of Marvel is in you. I chased the spirit of Marvel for about two years, practicing zero lightning loops daily and driving out to console sessions and tournaments wherever I could. I practiced with a good friend of mine a few days a week. We'd play for hours, wordless except for occasional exclamations of salt. One day he left for Korea and didn't come back for a year. When he did, my zero tore him apart. He didn't play much after that. The spirit of Marvel had left him. A few months later, I found myself beating up some kid at Frosty Fostings, a tournament in Chicago. I was up 2-0 and about to close out the third game, and then my hands stopped, seemingly of their own accord. I tried to press buttons and move the stick, but everything felt late, as if I had suddenly found myself playing Marvel underwater. The kid (laughs) came back to win that match. I stared at the rematch screen and realized I had stopped caring whether I won or lost that match. It felt meaningless. I half-heartedly played through the rest of the set. The spirit of Marvel had left me. At the end of the Marvel Finals at EVO this year, a shirtless man spontaneously appeared on stage yeah. as if to challenge the newly crowned EVO champion Christopher uh, NY Chris G. Gonzalez to defend his title. Most onlookers were confused. Marvel players were not. We understood that Chris G.'s win had opened his soul to the spirit of Marvel. As security hustled him off stage, we smiled, knowing that Marvel was alive and well within our hearts. Um, I just think like it's a really brilliant passage that I think does a good job of explaining like the passion people have for that particular franchise, for that particular game. And um, I think it does a really good job. And Patrick's writing, just generally speaking, does a really good job of explaining uh, fighting games to a, a wider audience. But yeah, so when I when I watch with sort of a befuddlement and amazement at how Capcom is just really mishandling their, like what should be the easiest rollout of a new game, um, which is like a new Marvel game. Uh, and then you read stuff like that and go, oh, you, you can see how wrong this can go so fast given sort of the passion people have for that specific property. Yeah, that doesn't seem like a, an easy problem to solve for, I guess, for anybody at any level of the FGC. Yeah, but um, I, I mentioned, you know, you mentioned before uh, that I was playing Splatoon 2, which I don't yeah. have a, a whole lot to say for this podcast. And also the reviews are embargoed till 
um, tomorrow morning. But um, I, I did not get deep into the original Splatoon's multiplayer, but got deep into Splatoon, uh, the original's uh, single player, which was kind of was deeply underrated and had a yes. ton of creativity. The bosses were fantastic. Uh, it had just enough meat to it that... Um, it was fun to play, but it wasn't like it, it didn't sort of swamp um, your time. It was just a really good get in and get out. Um, really, really well done. And uh, I, so far, of what I've played of Splatoon 2 single player, um, it is it is more of that in in the way you want. Uh, the the I don't even want to spoil what the bosses are um, <laughs> that I've played so far because the creativity on display in sort of the boss structure is half the fun. Um, but I'll say it's alive and well. The spirit of Marvel is alive and well in uh, Splatoon 2. <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah, it is it's it is the, the most approachable shooter I have, you know, ever played. And that was my, that was true of Splatoon 1. And so far, uh, what I've played of Splatoon 2 is that despite the fact that it's a sequel, I don't think it should scare people off from giving it a try. If you are fascinated by the idea of playing a competitive game and a game like Overwatch... Which I think for a lot of people was like, a, oh, I've never played one of these games before. It's cool that there's a game that kind of onboarded me in a way that uh, felt safe and uh, you were able to kind of understand uh, whether or not Overwatch stuck for you. I think for a lot of people it gave them a framework to understand these types of games. And I think Splatoon uh, operates in a very similar manner in which uh, whether or not it ends up sticking with you as like a, a game that you're going to play for weeks or months on end, uh, it is the on-ramp to playing and under... Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Standing Splatoon and the dynamics of a competitive shooter are such that uh, I always recommend it as as the kind of game that can at least give you a framework for why people are into those types of games, because Splatoon makes it very easy to to play, and um, the, the sequel so far seems to do a lot more uh, of that. So I'm hoping to spend some more time with it. We're not hoping. I am going to spend more time with this. After this I have to write about it <laughs> for tomorrow happen. morning. Um, but I, th- I think as a single-player game, it seems to hit the mark again, and as a multiplayer game... Um, it's interesting to watch uh, Nintendo develop a very traditional sequel. Um, that is not usually the sort of thing they do. They usually um, don't make these types of games, whereas Splatoon 2 is like the most traditional sort of sequel I think they've made in a long time, which is not a, a negative. It's more just that's that's how it works with these types of games. Like when you make a, a competitive shooter, like there's a certain framework for building a sequel, and Nintendo is making one of those, um, and they seem to be doing... Uh, as far as I can tell, like a, re- a really good job of it. Did did anyone else? I, you said, Dana, you didn't play a lot of it. Yeah. Rob, did, you, did you touch on Splatoon at all? A little bit, a little bit. I'm mostly sort of watching my girlfriend play it, and she's yes. also loving it. And I also agree with the single player assessment. I think uh, actually Splatoon 1 was one of the most sort of underrated secret 3D platformers yeah, that's been out in totally. a little while. Uh, it reminded me always of uh, Jet, Jet Grind Radio a little bit in a sure. weird way, sort yeah. of the momentum of it. Uh, but yeah, I've been I've been sort of mostly watching her play it uh, as I'm you know doing other things basically and, and sort of being jealous and being like oh, I need to 
need to play this. I add it to my sort of infinite list. Uh, but what is actually different about this game versus the first one? I played quite a bit of the first one, for sure. I mean, I don't think it's fundamentally there's a whole lot different about it. Like, it, it is an iterative sure. sequel in that there are t- new weapons, there are tweaks. It's it's more of the same in the way that you would want more of the same from a Splatoon yeah. game. Like, it's not... It's not Shaking the boat. Um, it's it's the one thing I'll say that we were talking about this in our uh, Discord uh, a week or two ago was just how good it looks. Um, yeah, Nintendo yeah. as a, as a company, um, as we hit sort of diminishing returns on like sort of technological leaps and what that means in terms of visual fidelity, like par- Nintendo. They benefit from the fact that they're usually operating from behind the curve, and so that when they're yeah. when they're the harbor they're working on, the technology does advance. And you see their their aesthetic, their art, their approach matched with that. It's it, it is remarkable because they are often they, because they are often working on inferior hardware. They are relying on art um, and art direction in a way that other games can some, can sometimes make up for by sort of like technical prowess. Um, and so then watching Nintendo's amazing art aesthetic matched with. You know, just things like Blur, like which we take for granted in all sorts of other yeah. games, but seeing how Nintendo subtly uses uh, new sort of visual technology, which is not even new, it's new to them, but watching it applied to their aesthetics, which are my, sort of my preferred aesthetics, like Nintendo's approach to like aesthetic design is some of my favorite in video games, and so watching that matched with um, just like the subtle things they can do uh, in, with uh, with art and, and visuals is is on display in you know games like Super Mario Odyssey and games like Splatoon 2 where uh, when you see it's kind of slowed down and showed in comparison to the original Splatoon, you you see the difference that it makes even if you don't necessarily pick up on it um, while you're playing. So yeah, it just seems like a really polished sequel. I'll hopefully have more to say later this week when um, I'll have given uh, a little more time with it. But uh, I, the, anyone that likes Splatoon I think is going to be just happy with Splatoon 2 and anyone that didn't give it a chance because, hey, there were lots of people that didn't own a Wii U. Uh, uh, yeah. This is a this is a really good chance to, to to dive in and see one of the more unique games that Nintendo has made over you know the last decade, in which they went into a genre that I don't think anyone would have given them much credit for being able to do something with, and they made they made a competitive shooter that is wholly Nintendo and yet doesn't feel as though it is overly simplified in a way that you know you couldn't invest a serious amount of time and feel like you're getting something out of it over that that period of time. Absolutely. Even though I know we all have beef with uh, the way they spelled it, without the two as the O-O, it seems like, yeah, I need to spend more time with it, too. Uh, One more thing I wanted to touch on before we go to the question bucket uh, was actually the sort of other big news over the weekend about Kingdom Hearts 3. There was some shade thrown, it seems like. Uh, Kingdom Hearts 3 director basically threw some shade over at Square, saying, hey, it's their fault that our game is taking so long and, and taking several years beyond sort of what it was uh, originally looking like. Uh, this, Patrick, this were you following com- this? Or? Well, yeah, when this game comes out, theoretically it's going to come out in 2018. That was one of the, 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 the big headlines from the D23 conference, which is uh, sort yeah. of Disney's own... Uh, well, it's saying Disney... Disney's is, is, own Comic-Con-ish, sort Yeah, of. <laughs> it's, it's saying it's Disney would, is maybe selling it short because Disney now encompasses Disney, Lucasfilm, and Marvel. So, it's you know, it's yeah. like <laughs> that, like each of those companies on their own and do. Like, Disney or... Uh, I guess Marvel doesn't have its own conference, but um, Star Wars has one um, yeah, sure everywhere. Uh, so, uh, yeah, so the, uh, D23 took place uh, just prior to Comic-Con, which is, I think, Comic-Con this week or, or next week uh, in San Diego. Yeah, it's coming um, right up. 
And uh, they confirmed a 2018 release window for Kingdom Hearts 3. I would caution anyone who is familiar <laughs> with Tetsuya Nomura's work to not get too excited about that 2018 date. That seems like a that game will maybe like an E3 next year will get a a fall. 2018 window that <laughs> slips to a spring 2019 actual release date. That seems like the, what might actually happen, but he did give an interview uh, in which uh, he uh, pointed to some of the reasons for um, this game taking forever, other than the fact that all Tetsuya Nomura games take forever, so this idea that he's secretly finding like some sort of actual explanation for this game that doesn't apply to all his other games that have taken way too long to be released... Um, uh, that the game did switch from an internal development engine uh, to an external uh, Unreal Engine 4 uh, about a year into release, which I wouldn't be shocked if that did create a very significant hurdle. Um, Square, uh, like a lot of Japanese companies for a long, long time, was would create brand new game engines for each new game. Um, oh, and totally. I imagine yeah. um, that, was that, that was just how Japanese development worked until very recently, um, whereas the West um, moved off to sort of the Unreal Engine and other... Uh, middleware, Unity, and the like uh, a long time ago. Um, not that there are proprietary engines, but by and large, that's not how it works anymore. Um, Japan is still, in, in many ways, uh, catching up to that. And so I wouldn't be surprised if that messed up a lot of pipeline, a lot of uh, how the games are made, and hopefully that means, you know, going forward, because uh, Final Fantasy VII's remake is also being developed on UE4, uh, things like that go a little uh, faster. Um, and a little smoother. Yeah, yeah and, and Nomura also pointed to, I guess there were some resource allocation issues, and that, you know, uh, maybe something like Final Fantasy you know, 15, while that was getting out the door, that was maybe taking up um, a lot of people. He didn't point to that project in particular, but said that, you know, sometimes Square has to kind of throw people at projects in order to get them out the door because they're often working on, um, you know, gigantic RPGs, and Final Fantasy XV had all of its own problems um, (laughs) for a long time um, before that uh, project uh, finally got out the door, which also was associated with Tetsuya Nomura. So maybe, Nomura, maybe you need to look at your own process and think about that. (laughs) Do you have a sense here of whether or not this is sort of very politely or very subtly sort of throwing shade and, and being annoyed by these sort of process issues, or is this just sort of... Oh, you know, hey, I'm I'm just <laughs> throwing people off my 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 tail here a little Man, bit. Do you have any I sense just, of that? I, or? I, I yeah. wish I understood what people see in Kingdom Hearts outside <laughs> of being able to play in Disney World, which I get. I am really into Disney. I yeah. I love when you give me the pitch on Kingdom Hearts. That sounds that sounds great. I really want to play <laughs> that game. And then I played Kingdom Hearts one and two, and when I these stories don't make any sense. <laughs> I d- don't like how these games even play. And will I play Kingdom Hearts 3? Yeah, probably. It's been just long enough that I've forgotten how much I disliked Kingdom Hearts 2. Uh, the, oh, yeah, let's go pilot a goddamn gummy ship again. I, uh, just, I, don't, I, I, don't, I don't get how so many people are apologists for how those games play. I, I, get, I get the Disney thing. And I get mashing up Square and Disney. I'm with you. I'm with you on that, but I am not with you on the way these games play, and I'm desperately hoping Kingdom Hearts 3 is going to play like a game that is fun to play, but I, everything about it I see so far... Like, over the weekend, Nomura gave an interview. He's like, hey, yo, we're bringing the gummy ship back. It's like, no one was waiting for that. No one... Like, is this what took five years? Is, like, a bunch of meetings over whether the gummy ship needs to come back? Just... Uh, am I the only one that has issues with the Kingdom Hearts series? No one else, please? I've Anyone? never played no? mm, any okay. of them. I, I just haven't played them. I, I like Disney. 
I like I like the Disney part. It's the the Final Fantasy part that doesn't uh, appeal to me as much. I'll be honest. So I would try it. You know what? Uh, like I'm an open. You know I'm open minded. I love Disney. Been to Disney World too many times to count. But uh, I don't know, man. Like really, really, really high budget JRPGs don't do a thing for me. Really, the one the one thing that is kind I like of smaller, just... weirder ones. Yeah, but fair. like really big, like. Frankly, like the Final Fantasy series and its ilk, just kind of don't do much for me. So I don't know. The one, the one thing that has been going around today um, is they so they announced uh, that there's going to be a Toy Story area um, in um, that's cool in Kingdom Hearts yeah. three. And uh, if, if people that have been following games probably since Toy Story came out, um, Toy Story for the longest time this kind of fell away uh, a number of years ago, but for the longest time. The comparison, as games were making fidelity leaps um, in the PS1 to PS2 to PS3 area, back when we were getting really, really big, uh, meaningful uh, leaps, not like this 4K nonsense, which people try to convince (laughs) themselves is like that, but it's not at all the same to what we were seeing back back then, 10, 15 years ago, is that often you would see people saying, um, oh, finally, with the PS2, like, we're going to get Toy Story-level graphics. Oh, like, that was the yeah. comparison made. Yeah. And so it's it's interesting now on the, you know, on the PlayStation 4, Xbox One, um, to see an actual Toy Story level. And there are comparisons going around. I, there was, I saw this on a thread on NeoGAF um, uh, where it was started, where people were taking screen grabs of... Toy Story 1, and then comparing it to the screenshots released for the Toy Story uh, area in Kingdom Hearts 3, and I mean, you know, if you'd shown people those screenshots back then, they would have been just as impressed. Like, there's uh, some aesthetic differences in terms of how uh, the the movie looks and how the game looks, but it is kind of incredible to use that as a bar for how far visuals really have come, because essentially in Kingdom Hearts 3, they're making a real-time you know, Toy Story movie that you're interacting with. And that's kind of an incredible benchmark for where yeah. visuals have come is to see that actually come to reality. And that actually when it did come to reality, no one really noticed because we gave that up as any sort of realistic benchmark a long, long time ago. Because, like, what does it mean to look like Toy Story? It just means that, I don't know what it means. But we did it, and now nobody cares. But it's kind of interesting to look back in retrospect. <laughs> yeah, I would love to have a, a 3D animator uh, on the podcast to like come here and, and just sort of be like, all right, here's what would actually need to happen. Or, you know, like what, what that would actually look like or, or seem like would be really, really fascinating, uh, I think. So I think we're ready for our question bucket. We've got about 75 in here. We've actually been doing a pretty good job on perma permadeath, like taking questions and just burning through them. So we've got, got about 75 in here. Uh, Rob, give me a number between 1 and 75 and we will... We will answer this question. All right, uh, 62. And this one comes in from Brett. Brett asks, if Trump's administration or any administration were to take aggressive steps to shut down dissenting opinions and facts in the media, is there a way to prepare for that and keep working through that sort of adversity? I wouldn't expect direct action uh, towards gaming outlets, but in some ways, Gamergate <laughs> had a hand in all this and no, that's rewards. See, that's what we don't think. That's where they're going to go first. Like, they're going to come they for go. us first. That's where we're number one line of defense for free freedom of press in America. Uh, Gamergate had a hand in all this, and tangible rewards for petty behavior in favor of Trump already taken the form of retaliatory punishment in the form of market influencing uh, Twitter posts seems to be firmly on the table. All right, that's Brett's question. Uh, it's a dark question, Brett. That is hard. It's Monday. <laughs> Couldn't you have given this to us on Friday when I can just crack open a beer and move on with my life? Ah. Uh, 
Well, we got to crack open a, an answer and move on with our life. I think the uh, whew, the thing to say here uh, is any all journalism is important in its own right. Uh, the fact that we have a freedom of press in this country is one of the most sacred and important things that we have. It is a check against uh, unrestricted insanity, basically, <laughs> in terms of power and in terms of the kind of corruption that happens. How old is in this government? question? When, when, did, when was this submitted? Uh, Do we have a timestamp? It's, it's 62. This one's somewhere in the middle uh, because we've been running through sort of on the, on the end uh, towards... I'm just, I, I, only, I only ask because, uh, like... The, the way we uh, felt, uh, you know, on uh, election night, the way we felt prior to uh, uh, Trump being inaugurated and in the, the days uh, after, I think there was a lot of, like, totally valid and, uh, fear over whether he would immediately pivot to a, like, straight-up authoritarian uh, rule and use his populist rhetoric to to dismantle, um, take over, like, do sorts of things that authoritarians tends to do. And what we've been saved by in uh what the six seven months has been is that actually like they're all incompetent like they are incapable yeah the gross of, incompetence has helped us the gross <laughs> incompetence has like essentially saved the republic they have not been able to pass a bill that they have uh campaigned on for the better part of seven years and to actually do like, everything that trump most of what trump has done other than if you want to talk to uh like the larger sort of like rhetorical societal changes that will uh, burn permanence uh, long beyond um however long uh, he is around um the, the, all, most of what trump has done has been things that could be undone immediately that there is a new president like he has actually done very little of permanence outside of sort of a rapid decline in in rhetoric <laughs> and, and like that's all bad too um but yeah. in terms of policy like he's been an exceedingly poor uh, uh, president, and and the Congress has has not helped him in matters. Um, and so, like th- that's why I asked about when this question was written, because at this point, yeah. I just don't think they're competent enough to enact the sorts of nightmare scenario things that we were worried about. Like I, you know, I, their backs against the wall. Who knows? I guess, but like institutions and the press have proven a pretty remarkable. Uh, and sturdy check against an administration that I think a lot of people were rightly terrified about um, and that lots of bad things have happened and will continue to happen. But in terms of how I felt last November or last February versus where we are now, I, I breathe a little bit easier than I did before. So I guess the thing that has me still sort of concerned about stuff like this, well, not not this exact question, but sometimes it feels like we're all being chloroformed to death uh, to an extent. (laughs) So what we've learned with, like, there's no need to shut down the media and crack down on dissent if you've basically annihilated the concept of public shame uh, for your most important supporters. Like, the press only, it's it's sort of, it's truth to power and, um, like, ombudsman uh, functions only really work when other authorities are willing to actually act on information that's brought to brought to light. But if you make it so that literally your especially dumb child uh, can go online and basically tweet out, uh, you know, the fact that you were openly coordinating with a foreign power to influence an election and nothing happens, uh, that it's, right. that it's not this like instant show-stopping scandal indicates that like to a degree the need to muzzle the press has been 
sort of taken care of because in the end, if nothing changes and you set the expectation that nothing's going to change uh, because of the norms your supporters have adopted, uh, then eventually you just write out the storm and everyone's going to go back to, you know, writing Game of Thrones takes. That's just the new cycle we're in now. Uh, the the thing that though that does scare me is that you know Trump was symptomatic of some other things, but for me it's the the Peter Thiel's of the world uh, that that concern me a little more. The fact that basically you're a vindictive billionaire away from having your outlet sued into oblivion, uh, like you know the, yeah. the, what happened to Gawker, where basically you know he was basically placing bets on all these different lawsuits uh, until he got a winner. Uh, that's incredibly scary because no media organization has the resources to, to fight off that kind of sustained uh, attack. And I think that might be a future we're, we're headed for more often is that, you, you know, it's not necessarily the government's going to want to crack down on the press. It's going to be all these shitty, like, you know billionaire wannabe dictators. We don't have too many of those in video games, although we do have one who is often very concerning, let's say, on yeah. uh, Twitter. Um, <coughs> Notch! <coughs> oh, my, <coughs> sorry, some weird in my... Crotch? Is please, that, yeah. please don't oh, sue yeah. us. Please don't sue us. Please don't sue us. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. I, I Like, that whole sort of uh, the metaphor about befouling the well so much that nobody wants to drink from it anymore, I think has scarily uh, too much weight in, in our current world. And, and yeah, sort of the nature of truth in 2017 scares me uh, a great deal. I, I really do hope we come out of this post-truth political <laughs> moment and, and go back to uh, some semblance of agreeing on some level uh, what decency might look like. So, yeah. Thanks, Brett. Thanks for that uh, nice little light Monday <laughs> light Monday question. Let's do a uh, Let's do one more, Patrick. You wanna you wanna give a number between one and seventy-four at this point? Forty. All right, let's go to forty. This is forty. Oh, all right, this one's from Jesse. <clears throat> Jesse says, Hey there, waypointers. Do you have any pointers on mm. properly making arguments mm. and how to know when not to even bother? I'm starting to find myself responding to every single counter argument, even when they are, in my opinion, low effort and most likely just trying to get a reaction. Also, is voice getting rid of comments going to have any effect on your plans for a forum? Regards, Jesse. Well, Jesse, part two is easy. Part two is real easy. Uh, we have a forum now. Part one is something I struggle with on a daily basis uh, as yeah, a you, woman like, on you the recent, internet. You recently really got into it. <laughs> yeah. like, a, like last week, right? I, I sure did. Yeah, last week I lost like three hours of sleep getting into a shit fit with somebody who... Uh, disagreed with me about um, basically the opioid crisis in America, and uh, I, I retweeted a piece about it. I, I don't need to go into Was that the specific. same night you were fighting about Spider-Man? Were these two concurrent... Were you fighting no, the two-front no. shitpost war? No, no. <laughs> Spider-Man was different. And also, I like uh, feel like I, I covered my ass so much better with the Spider-Man one, because I was like, look, it's just not for me. I respect that it's for other people. And then I said something very rude about Spider-Man the next day, and I think I upset Austin. He was actually a little mad at me, and I feel I feel bad. I'm sorry, Austin. That's why he's not on the podcast today. He's still mad at me for saying something shitty about Spider-Man. Just kidding. Uh, honestly, 
So as somebody who was targeted by Gamergate, as somebody who is a woman, visibly a queer woman on the internet and gets a lot of death threats and die of cancer and all that kind of stuff, uh, I think we all do <laughs> if we're game journalists. But I, I do think there is something to be said for uh, being a lady in these spaces sometimes can be uh, a little harrowing. Uh, there, I went through a phase that was don't engage with the trolls and that didn't work. I, I don't think there is a uh, full winning strategy. I completely go with my gut. And there are some days where I feel like, no, okay, I'm not going to engage. I'm going to, you know, take the higher road and completely disengage from this. I'm going to completely not do this. And there are other days where I'm like, you know what? I'm mad. I know I'm right. <laughs> I know I have the statistics to back up my arguments. I know I have the personal experiences as an EMT and someone who's gone through uh, seeing family members die of opioid addiction to, uh, you know, I, I have a watertight position here. I'm going to fucking stand up for myself. Uh, so occasionally I would say one out of every 100, maybe, I don't know, if we'll, we'll put that as a number, uh, is the ratio that I will engage uh, with somebody. And then there's obviously the the other end of this, which is, are people going to be sort of arguing with you in good faith or somebody just, just really trying to make you have a bad day? And that is completely a gut check because you will never know. You will never know unless you know this person very personally, have conversations with them in different contexts. So that one is completely a crapshoot. So if you're going to get into a fight with somebody online, I would say, if you can, <laughs> know your shit <laughs> yeah. and know whether or not this is a battle you want to fight and pick your battles. Getting into every one of these fights will make you want to die in short order. So pick pick them. Pick, try to pick winners if you can. The, the corollary I will offer to this is if you are someone who often feels moved to get mad and be right on the internet and argue with people – Consider look deeply in the mirror before you, <laughs> b- before you sort of press before you sort of press onwards uh, in, yeah. in your crusade because like definitely there there are moments where I've woken up the next morning and been like wait was I the asshole last night was like <laughs> yeah. did was that tweet storm really warranted by that provocation or did I just like. Was I basically the pedantic, opinionated jerk uh, who was who was getting up in somebody's mentions? Uh, so yeah. definitely, like you know, I, I think in general, it's it's good policy to not take part in 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 too many of these fights. But man, on the other hand, some people some people just have it coming. So you know, some, <laughs> especially, like especially when when they're just really emotionally invested in holding a shitty position. Uh, then that is that is, that is tough to resist. And the one thing I would say is um, sometimes it's wor- Sometimes I find myself getting into those conversations not because uh, don't think about it as winning or necessarily convincing the other person, but it is sometimes useful to have those exchanges, even if they don't end in a place where someone says, "Oh, I learned something." But like just refining your argument um, and being able to articulate what your argument is, because. Often, you know, I think a lot of us tend to hang out with people who, like, we're all on the same page about certain things. So it's like the the conversation is not often about, like, why you feel that way. We all just agree because we're all on the same page. And I sometimes find it useful to have exchanges with hopefully, like, reasonable people. Like, I've I've actually found myself in, you know, post-Trump's election, like, I started following a lot more sort of, like, libertarian and conservatives um, that, like, aren't, like, on the alt-right, uh, sort of, like, far-right, um, but, like, are folks that, like, have problems with Trump and but don't necessarily fall into, like, the my sort of progressive politics. And I will yeah. occasionally find myself, like, 
especially folks that like don't have as many followers where like I feel like reasonably I can get them to respond to me and like I've had like really good exchanges with folks who write for like really conservative publications that like it was an interesting back and forth and we didn't necessarily end up agreeing but it was pleasant and like forced me to like actually articulate my argument to someone who is predisposed to not agree with my side of the political spectrum um and I found them to be like really pleasant and forced me to refine and like especially doing it in Twitter over like 140 characters like really distill what I'm trying to say as succinctly as possible and uh I found that I found that useful absolutely I, I've I've had those as well, and they are wonderful. Or even the "Hey, I'm a, I'm a real human being" aspect of it is is extremely useful. Uh, as, as like a "Hey, you know what? Real people have had really different experiences for me, and it's really good to know what those experiences are, so I can consider that in my own life, in my own arguments, and sort of knowing what's going on in the damn world because it's a very complicated place. So yeah, I've I've found that very helpful as well. It's it's definitely a matter, Jesse question asker of of finding which battles to fight and uh and and kind of how to conduct yourself oh i think on that on that beautiful note we took a couple of hard questions today that was did. yeah oof. god damn it oh, oh damn all right so uh we're, we're gonna start doing our outro but as always we always tell people where we where you can find us on the internet if you want to have arguments with us uh i am at danielle ri patrick how about I'm you at patrick Klippik. and rob where are you Trapped in an endless nightmare subterfuge game of my own making. Uh, also <laughs> at Rob Zachney. Excellent. Fantastic. Well, thank you so, so much to our producer, Tim Barnes. He's at TimBarnes451 on Twitter. Don't argue with him. He tells great jokes online, though. He's got some good, good ass jokes, so uh, you should follow him for those. It's fantastic. Thank you. And shout outs to Bowen for letting us use the track. Miss you off of the EP Pale Machine. You can go to waypoint.zone slash bowen for that. You can find all the good stuff and wonderful stuff and our shit posting at uh, waypoint.vice.com. You can find all our good stuff at Waypoint on Twitter and at Waypoint Vice on Facebook, Waypoint Vice on YouTube. There are a million redirects. I won't even attempt to go there, but I don't think that biz.nas goes there just yet. We'll, we'll work on that one. We'll work on that one. So everybody, thank you so, so much. We appreciate you listening. We appreciate you uh, hanging out with us. And we appreciate your good and positive arguments on Twitter. So with that, I will say, be good or be good at it. Peace. (laughs) Yes! Very good. Wait, was I not supposed to go? No, that's even better. That was so good. That was so good. Rob, that was great. That was good. This podcast is over. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.